Why do you say that, Father? Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California. This is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael. And today we are welcoming back psychotherapist Merle Yost. And we're going to be talking about relationship and boundaries and any other tangents we want to in that area. But first, we're going to look at the announcements. Hi, everyone. And once again, thank you, as always, for supporting our show. We're getting close to 600 subscribers now, and we've grown a lot even in the last month. So, And if you're new to the show, please subscribe. It helps us a lot. So just go on YouTube and uh, let us know that you love our show or hate it or whatever, but let us know that you're out there, and we'll be happy to, to entertain you guys, we hope. And we have a couple of great shows coming up. Um, we have Spell It Out next week with Krista, where we're going to talk about whatever Krista decides she wants to talk about. So it's always fun, a little bit free form, and I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Um, and then coming up in the next month, we have all kinds of cool shows on tap. We have uh, Humberto Braga coming back to talk about the website he started with uh, networking a lot of people together, uh, mystics and healers and so forth. Um, Eric Bennett, a friend of ours, is going to talk about prophecy and revelation and how that applies to, to today and what to expect about our future based on that. And uh, just a lot of great stuff. So go to our website. You can get all the latest information. It's sunset, or, um, sorry, um, sixcentsociety.com. That's S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out, SixCentsSociety.com, and our Facebook and Instagram. You can you know check us out on there as well. And then one other quick shout-out, um, Sunset Lodge, which is our patron in many respects. They're kind enough to let us do our show from here. Have a great event coming up this weekend. It's a jam session, and they do it quarterly. We have phenomenal musicians, and people share poetry and comedy and just whatever they wish to share in terms of their talents and so forth. It is something that we do have open to the public by invitation. So if any of you are listening and you're in the Santa Monica area and you want to swing by for it, uh, just get a hold of me, and I'll be happy to get you on the guest list. So, uh, And it is something we do about every three months. So uh, great stuff. And again, their website, uh, sunsetmasoniclodge.org if you want information about the lodge. Um, so with that, I'm going to kick it back to Krista and Merle, and I'm excited because Merle is not only an incredible healer and therapist, but one of our lodge brothers, so we have a special relationship. So I'm looking forward to the show today, so take it away, guys. Great. Thank you, Michael, and welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be back. And we're glad you came in person this time. It's always nice to have people in the studio. We like it. I like it better, too. Yeah. Though we understand when people can't make it. So we were, um, this February, we've been focusing on relationships. And so we wanted to ask your opinion about different aspects of relationships. We only have an hour. <laughs> I know. It's a topic that fills many books. <laughs> well, something I often talk about in my workshop, Unspoken Boundaries, is that We've set up relationships, particularly between men and women, so badly at this point. And men are socialized to take their thoughts seriously. Women are socialized to take their feelings seriously. Men are socialized that they can't be a victim and they're not a man. Women are socialized to be victims. We've set up these diametrically opposing forces, and then we put them in a relationship and expect them to get along and communicate. In an ideal sense, each will learn from the other and they'll meet somewhere in the middle. But people aren't nearly nearly that flexible, <laughs> uh, not really that interested in growth in my experience. They just want them to be the way they want them to be. Mm -hmm. uh, when people come into couples therapy, it's very common for them to come in and say, I just want you to make him do what I want him to do, or I want you to make her do what I want her to do. And consequently, they're not really interested in changing or really understanding what's going on, which is one of many reasons I stopped doing couples therapy. Uh, and also, 
the biggest it reason was is that so often you have a somebody who's emotionally 14 years old in relationship with somebody who's three years old and then they don't have any middle ground there to meet and so the relationship is really chaotic and unpleasant and of course we go back to the whole thing of recreating our families i talked about that each of us in childhood learn a dance of intimacy and then we assume that's how people get along, that's how people love each other, that's how they communicate. And then we go out into the world and we're unconsciously looking for that dance that we learned in our family. And so that's how we remarry or marry our parents, one of them. And usually the one that we have the most difficulty with mm -hmm. is classically the parent that we're going to marry. And then we wonder why we've recreated our parents' relationship in that particular thing. So there's so many things stacked against having a relationship. And then the, I think the other really damaging piece is all this mythology about two shall become as one nonsense, mm. which just destroys so many relationships. Because the worst thing you can do is merge with another person. The juice happens at the contact boundary or that it's going to last forever. I mean, when we got married at 14 and died at 30 and we were busy yeah. producing children along the way, that kind of made sense. But we have much longer lifespans and for two people to match up to be willing to grow together and to work through all that happens, that's a rare experience in this day's world, particularly when you're together 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Right. And so people change. Once the needs change, when you get to be 40, you do these things, you get to be 50. Classic thing at 50 is that you start to discard the things in your life that aren't working. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm 50, I don't have to put up with that anymore. <laughs> this person's gone, that person's gone, this is gone. Uh, and so, and sometimes that's the spouse. <laughs> oh, I, I don't really have to put up with this. I'm not, I, I'm too old for this silliness now. And so as we change, our relationships change mm -hmm. in all parts of our life. And so we have to change this mythology about two shall become as one and marriage is forever and blah, 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 blah. And uh, because that mythology alone is one of the most damaging things because it doesn't give us room to grow. Mm -hmm. There was, I don't know if I read this in an Irish um, book or Celtic mythology, but there was this belief that when you married, you became three and that there's you and the other person and that alchemy that you learn to dance with or not. And I really thought that was really wise. And after I, I learned that, I said, you know, that's more like it because you keep your individuality. And then there is this kind of alchemy that we're all a little baffled by because, and we should be, because why would we want to be married or with someone if there wasn't some mystery? How boring would that be? Oh, <laughs> well, yes, exactly. So I think that's how I, I tell people a lot. I said, well, actually, this is my thought is that you don't become one. And it's 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 an it's a it's something I like to put out there to maybe contradict that you know merging idea. Well, the relationship has a life of its own. Yes, but it's also to remember that that is just a part of you. It isn't the sum total of you. Yes. When my ex and I first were together, we were mentored by an older couple, and they introduced us the concept of your time, my time, and our time. And so we mm. were to, to decide when is it going to be our time that we were expected to be together. And, what, and so that you didn't do things with other people. This was our time. Like my ex and I would go to dinner every Friday night and then we'd go grocery shopping after that. That was kind of our evening ritual. It was our connecting and closing out the week. And, right. and we didn't spend a lot of time together during the week because I worked a swing shift and he worked a, a uh, daytime shift. So we saw each other really largely on the weekends. Uh, so that really worked well. And so if you want to do something, you do it on your time, mm -hmm. not on our time. And you know when you can plan to do things. That gives an enormous amount of freedom because there's another one of the mythologies that we have in relationship is that you're supposed to spend every possible moment together from the rest of your life. That just makes me tired thinking about it. <laughs> that, that's so true. And I, I think... Um... I was fortunate I was forced to be alone when I didn't want to, and then I really started wanting to be alone. So by the time I married Michael, which was my you know mid-30s, I valued my solitude and the things it gave me, and, um, and, and he's like that too. And I think that's really important. That, and I love that idea, though, my time, your, your time, time, and our time. time. That's a really wonderful way of looking at it. 
we need agreements about when we're going to be sharing time so yeah. that we can have our life yeah. <laughs> without having to apologize or even doing it. And you can always renegotiate what our time is this particular week, if that's what you need to do, because sure. life isn't set in concrete typically. But it just saves so many arguments and it gives you so much permission to have your things to do what you want to do. Right. Without feeling like guilty. And... Right. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> I'm not spending every possible moment with you. It's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> And then, and part of that mythology, for, for at least for a woman, is that this person's supposed to know every part of you. And again, that makes no sense when you think about it. It's not like you should hold, you know, secrets from people. But well, I mean, but, most people don't even know themselves enough. <laughs> but the, the whole point of intimacy, let's go to that. Intimacy is the act of revealing who you are to another person and risking being rejected or humiliated or shamed. And a long-term relationship is about getting deeper and deeper and deeper into knowing who the other person is. Emotionally, physically, sexually, etc. You just get deeper and deeper. And that's where the, the juice really happens in a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. Because you've gained so much trust that I can absolutely be who I am here. And I'm not going to be rejected. And it's that unconditional love that gives us all life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... To think that we're going to know that in the first 10 minutes of marriage or whatever, it takes, psychologists say it takes two years to actually get to know who another person is. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to meet somebody long distance, you can't get to know who they are. You have to wake up with them several times a week. You mm -hmm. have to see them uh, before they've showered and brushed their teeth. You have to know what they look like at the end of the day and all of their moods. And that only comes out of being around somebody a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, it seems like um, there is a bit more of that from doing readings, a lot of readings over the years with, with relationships. There's even more fantasy uh, elements and maybe a heightened impatience with people. Because on the one hand, you, you certainly don't want to stay in a, a bad relationship. But I've seen people not give anything a chance at all. Like not, it's like if they, that expectation, they're not meeting what I want. Well, it's a little narcissistic. Yes. But that, I'm afraid that seems to be really the case. I think Michael has a comment. I, I was going to say, and, and it's funny because I, what Merle was just saying about two years, and I, I've said to that a lot to people with, with reading somehow intuited that over the years. And I always say that relationships go through three distinct stages, in my opinion, and Merle can shoot me down if he disagrees. But um, it starts with lust. We're just attracted to each other for some stupid reason, whatever it is. We don't know anything about the person, we, nothing deeper. It's just an attraction. And that stage can last easily, you know, six months or more, where it's just that lusty stage where we're attracted to each other. But as we're spending time together, then that becomes the next stage of a relationship over about six months to a year, which you begin to appreciate the person. I think then it gets into this appreciation. Now I'm starting to sort of see who you really are and start to see some of your deeper qualities, and I'm beginning to, to appreciate you more than I did at the beginning. And then I always tell people, you know, then that appreciation eventually deepens into love, but that takes mileage. After you've bailed each other out of jail a couple of times and survived a couple of bars, <laughs> fights then at that point you love the person you know but but I, I always say love can and I don't know where I got this from because it was really just from from talking to people I guess about relationships over the years or doing all these readings and I always say love can take at least two years to form and and that was something I've often told people so it's really interesting to me to hear Merle talk about it takes two years according to therapists to really get to know the person so I'm a hundred percent in agreement with that and 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 some people obviously can fall madly in love with somebody a week after they've met but that's called obsession that's way too fast <laughs> and, and that's not healthy. So I think that these are the stages. But one of the things I notice about people, and again, from Merle to just jump in, um, is how they freak out when it starts to transition from those stages. So I had somebody last oh. night that has been now with somebody for about a year, and, and now the relationship isn't quite as intense as it was at the beginning. And I said, well, that's because you're moving into the next stage, which is that appreciation. It's a different kind of energy. It isn't just the lusty, attractive energy. Now you're beginning to appreciate each other more, and it's got a, a little different feel. But she was actually almost panicking because it didn't feel like it did the first day. So I think that that was interesting. So I wonder what Merle's thoughts are on that. I have a slightly different version, but the same basic concept is that the first stage is what we call limerence. It's when everything they do is delightful. Their farts <laughs> smell delightful. I mean, uh, uh, there's everything's perfect. They squeeze the tube in the middle, uh, the taste toothpaste tube in the middle, and it's funny or cute. And then we start losing our illusion about who they are, is what I call the second stage. And so suddenly it's not quite so amusing, and the farts aren't nearly as pretty smelling as they used to be. 
But the third stage is when we start to lose our illusion about ourselves in the relationship. Mm. And we say, oh, this isn't just about them. <laughs> and so if you get through those first three stages, then you have the possibility of a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. But most people never make it past the second stage. Mm. And that's why so many people are shopping, because they, they can't handle losing the fantasy about who that person is. And in terms of the falling, instant falling in love, I think that most of the chemistry is in people that we have had past lives with that there's some kind of deep karmic connection that we've been in a relationship with them before and the sex is usually can be off the scale because we're touching it on so many different levels. But just because you had a past relationship or life relationship with them doesn't mean this is going to be the right one. You may have a great time and may have a deep connection, but that's all karmic and it's all... We, we travel with these people through different lives. And so it, it's noted to make, it's, it's important to make sense of that and understand that that chemistry may be the foundation of a really incredible relationship or it may be just the ultimately the foundation of a really deep friendship. It's true. I, I had a young woman, a client came to me, she was in her 20s, and she told me she had met this man. She knew they had a soulmate connection, but she told me, I know we're not going to get married. And I'm okay with that, she said. And I remember thinking, like, she is extraordinary. I mean, I've not ever had anyone else say that. And she was, mm. she'd was, made peace with it. I mean, mm. to come in mostly those karmic connections, when they don't work out the way we wanted them, it causes people unnecessary pain, I think. Well, I think she was wise. I mean, uh, I lost my train of thought I was going to say there, but these karmic connections are so important, and it's often the driver of all of it, but we then get lost in it instead of seeing who they are now and who we are now. Right. And uh, it, most long-term relationships, in my experience, have some kind of karmic connection. That's We've, we've all done this so many times. <laughs> I, I would say I really agree with you because there have been times I've met someone that seems so nice and so lovely, and I just can't form a connection. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, I don't know why. And right. there's nothing I can really see wrong with this person. And so I don't, you know. The juice isn't and, there. Yeah. <laughs> and what and that's that I mean, that is that little mystery part. Mm. Um so um I'd like to talk a little about the idea of um addiction to love. Okay. That's always a hot topic. Um I can give you my take on it. It's almost always a child part of them that is obsessed with this other person is going to be the good parent that's going to give them the love that they're finally going to get that they didn't get from their parent or parents. And so it's the child who gets hooked into this. And so until that child uh, gets integrated or that need gets met, uh, they're going to be completely lost in this because children don't have any boundaries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and children can get obsessed with getting that love. I mean, a, whole, a, a child's whole job in life is to make their parents love them mm -hmm. <laughs> so that they stay safe and they're cared for in food. Uh, and so if that child is the part of them that's engaged, they're just going to keep doing this until such time as they find a way to get that child's needs met and, and hopefully integrated so they don't have to keep playing out this dance anymore. But it's that's not an adult response to another adult. It's a child's response to another person. And then when you get two kids in a relationship, that can get really ugly. So that idea that, you know, I cannot live without that person. It's that the child who the can't, child. literally, who can't survive without, without that adult taking care that of them. Sense. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. then when they're really young, it's they can't. They can't. It's a realistic yeah. view of the child part. So you have mm -hmm. to go back and see which child does this act? Is it the four-year-old, the two-year-old, the 12-year-old who is so desperate to hold on to this because they don't have them, they're not going to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful when you think about it. And then it it can at least break the cycle if a person recognizes that's what they're doing and then go get help to help the child. I know you're really big on allowing time for the child to grow when they've been stunted and that that's part of the healing process. It is. I mean, childhood, nobody gets through childhood unscathed. It's a pretty awful experience. We pop out. We don't have a lot going on inside. We have to build a sense of self. We have to figure out. From the moment that you pop out, you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> That's true. And unfortunately, we reach grand conclusions about 
what's going on before we have any enough data points to reach grand conclusions. Our parent is not giving us food, so therefore we come to the conclusion that we're not worthy or that we're bad, or our parents are fighting, and it's our fault, and so we're bad, so it wouldn't be happening. And so then we take these beliefs, and we extrapolate them extrapolate them in a big way, and then take them out into the world, and that's how we treat ourselves. So we have to go back and rescue those kids. We have to unearth those early grand conclusions we reached so that we can actually be present in the world instead of living through this false lens of what's really going on. And then I would like to talk a little bit about your workshops on boundaries. You were mentioning how children don't have boundaries. And then, of course, we all know that many of us uh, struggle with boundaries. And, and, and maybe let's first talk about what you consider boundaries and how would you help people that have issues with boundaries or even how would you, you know, address what those issues are? Because I, I assume there'd be different sorts of wounds. Sure. I mean, all of them almost always come back to some level of childhood or some traumatic experience in adulthood. I mean, if you were mugged and you had post-traumatic stress from that, you're going to really impair your relationships and, and boundaries with other people. If you were sexually abused or raped, uh, then that's going to impair your trust with people in general, and it's going to confuse you around boundaries, around sex and, and connection. And our hardest boundaries are always with our family, our relationships, and work. Yes. <laughs> it's just how it comes. And so because we have some fantasy that it's safe here, and it's not. <laughs> In some ways, it's the biggest landmine of all, because we take better protection of being on the bus or on the subway or in the shopping mall or around other people we don't know. So we, we try and stay more in ourselves. But when we're around our families that are friends and often at work, we just let it all splay out there without any regard, assuming they're going to just take whatever we put out. So we don't get taught about boundaries. I mean, we get taught that when you get married, you merge into one being. We get taught that whatever your parents say to you, you're supposed to take on as a belief about who you are. We go to our churches and organizations and what they think of us is more important than what we think of us. And in my book, I call that giving me up to be loved by you, mm -hmm. which is another definition of codependency. But unfortunately, that becomes because childhood is so contentious and difficult and because we have to the job of the child is to make the parent love them. We learn how to make them love us in order to survive, mm -hmm. but we take that into adulthood and then we're giving it all away. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make any sense. Nobody teaches us that what they think of us is interesting information and we should consider it, but that isn't who we are. Mm -hmm. But we don't ever get taught how to hold that boundary or even to think that way. Um, there's a, a, an exercise I do in the workshop where I have people surrounded by people who don't like them. And that's always such a devastating experience for most people, though occasionally I'll find somebody who says, oh, there's no one in the world who doesn't like me. And like, <laughs> then you're not alive. <laughs> but that tells you the deep depth of wounding that they can't tolerate even the possibility that somebody doesn't like them. Well, yeah. And so that's a really difficult situation for them. Uh, but... We give it away. And just as like, and the first boundary is inside. The most important thing you do in psychotherapy and hopefully in life is develop an observing ego. That's where you come to recognize that you're not your thoughts and you're not your feelings, but there's this other part of you that's actually connected to your soul, that to your divine level that should pay attention to those thoughts and those feelings, those are information. But if you think that your thoughts or you think your feelings, then you're lost in all of this chaos going on. Mm -hmm. So if you can hold that boundary first or get to that one, it makes all of this a whole lot easier because everything that I've talked about in terms of making people love you or uh, trying to get people to see you, <laughs> oh, I nobody ever sees me, is all about defining yourself in terms of how they're seeing you. Mm -hmm. And that at the core is the definition of narcissism. Narcissism is a, not, is a complete lack of a sense of self. We're talking about a characterological disorder. 
everybody has narcissistic wounds and we have things that show up. But when a full-blown narcissistic personality disorder is someone who has no internal sense of self and their only way they experience themselves is in the reflection they get back from the other. Mm -hmm. And when we get into these young places, these naturally narcissistic things show up or way of being. And so we take that out into the world over and over again. And then we get wounded by people not reflecting us back the way we won't think we should be reflected back. So... In the workshop, I teach people these energetic boundaries because it's all present in us. We all have this electromagnetic field around us, but we've never been taught how to utilize or to manipulate that in a way that's to our benefit. Mm -hmm. Instead, we just let anybody walk, waltz in, <laughs> and then we absorb all their stuff, and we're taught that empathy and compassion is merging with them and feeling their pain, and that's that couldn't be more wrong because it's intrusive. It's not useful to them. It's not useful to you. Your job as a human being is to witness another person's pain, validate it, and empathize by expressing that, but not feeling it. I mean, I I often talk about that when you, how many times have you gone to someone with something that's bothering you, you're in pain, you've just lost somebody, and they fall apart, and you end up taking care of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of them being there for you. It's because this person has no boundaries and they just merged into whatever they think your pain is and they've, they're off to the races and you're left there holding the bag and not getting any support. But that's, there's so many examples of uh, that. Uh, the classic one in the relationship is the wife who's mad at the husband and he doesn't know why. And she says, well, if you don't know why, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Because you haven't merged with me, you know what's going on. How dare you? And so he's he's twice out because he's yes. he's asked, what is it that I did? I'll do whatever I need. And But she's not so mad at him, she won't tell him. And it's like, this is called boundary. There's no boundary there. She's mm -hmm. wanting him to be merged with her so that he knows everything that she's thinking and feeling. And that ain't ever going to happen. And it should not happen. Yeah. Michael just once said, he's not telepathic. <laughs> and if you <laughs> are. Made a point, you know. Well, and I think, you know, it does seem to me now certainly as i'm older that it's always good to ask for what you want even with people that have known you for many many years why would you stop doing that you know and and i feel much better about doing that i do that much better than when i was younger because i think i definitely had some of that idea oh he knows me now so he'll he'll guess what i want for my oh, birthday you know that'll validate how much he loves me <laughs> uh -huh. you know I, I definitely made some of the mistakes of the merging part but i i will say that um you know it, it's also really perpetuated it in society that romantic merging and especially when we're young and we're, you know, watching the movies and, and things. And, and you really have to watch that even as you get older. I, I don't fall for it now, but I sure did when I was younger. I said, oh, that's love, you know. <laughs> and and I didn't get the healthy version in my family like many of us. And I certainly don't blame my parents. <laughs> They're human too. So. Yeah, when you recognize, I think one of the most destructive things of our society is that we have a victim society. And that uh, all our, our television programs are all about who's the biggest victim. I mean, I, it kills me every time you look at one of these uh, America's Got Talent or uh, I don't know, there's two or three that I can't kid the voice, I think. But they always tell their backstories about the tragic life they've had and how they've overcome. It's like, <sighs> I mean, and so if you can't get empathy unless you're a massive victim. And that's what we, we want to see, the, the story of overcoming all this. That's all very nice, but we've all been victimized. Yes. And, we, and as a Buddhist, I think that we chose everything that we, it happened to us and we come back. And once you accept that this was your choice, your path to have these parents, to have these lovers, to have these kids, whatever, that takes a lot of the victim out of it so that you can say, okay, then what is it I'm supposed to learn from this and how do I heal this so I don't have to do this again? It's a much more productive way of being in the world than, oh my God, I'm so victimized by my husband and blah, 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 or my wife. And we've just made it, we've set our whole society up in a way that doesn't really work. <laughs> it's true. I wish I could remember this Voltaire quote I found. It was something like, we're all dealt a particular set of cards in life, it's what you do with it 
that makes the difference. And that's why we do see sometimes people that, I mean, I've met people I really think are extraordinary and they don't complain about their past, but they've made a lot out of their life. And in fact, that's one reason I respect them and they don't, they don't let their past determine their future. And you might you know, mention it now and then or something just as a story almost. And it's very true. And I've also seen people from doing readings that have give, been given a lot and they're not doing anything with it. And I said, it's all about what you, you do with what you have. And you can overcome all kinds of things because we've seen that, you know. And, and sometimes you don't have to have a lot of suffering to do good in the world. There are plenty of people that, maybe <laughs> no. not plenty, but there's definitely a, a lot, you know, people that have a decent background and they do a lot more than a lot of people would even have to. So, you know, you can say it is about not being a victim, no matter what kind of background you have, good, medium, we, we, you know, terrible. You have to, we've all been victimized and you have to own and work through the pain of having been a victim. I'm talking about big stuff. Somebody kills a, a relative in a car accident or they cut off your arm or they do something to you that's irreparable and will impact you for the rest of your life. And so you can stay lost in the, oh, poor as me, but there's and there's no win in that. You have to go through the anger. You have to go through the grief. You have to grieve the might-have-beens of what might have happened if this hadn't have happened, the wedding that didn't happen, or the grandchildren, or the whatever. And then come to terms with it and say, that. and this is where I am. This is where, on some level, I chose this so that I could heal. It makes me very sad because I'd had hopes otherwise. And then move to a place of having been victimized. Because as long as you stay a victim, as long as you're a survivor of, then you're still defining yourself by that experience, mm -hmm. which means you're still stuck in the past. Yes, that's really true. And I've seen that happen. I think I was a little bit, when I was younger, with grief, kind of stuck in grief. Grief can feel kind of romantic. Well, you know? it depends on your personality type. Yes. <laughs> oh, my suffering is so much greater suffering than anybody else's sufferings have possibly been. And I'm going so creative when I'm suffering. <laughs> So I will say I didn't run to everybody and talk about it. That's the one thing I, I found it maybe more useful to work on it myself, like to work on it through my journal. Uh, my journals, I mean, are full of all this stuff, and I kept them. And now it's interesting to see as a record of where I was really at. And I, I, I see I have made some progress when I think I haven't made any. I said, oh, okay, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I was like, thank God. Yeah, you know, I don't get upset <laughs> over that. But um, what I guess one of my pet peeves is 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 with the victim ideas is people going so much outwardly now and talking about oh there's suffering like I mean constantly and it's it's a little too much for me. <laughs> well, like, there's a good part and a bad part. <laughs> the good part is when you own that you were sexually abused and you face the shame of that, and then because the antidote to shame is light move through it. It's when the people wallow in it and, and have made it their identity. There's a chapter in the book called The Victim Identity Disorder, which I really talk about these different ways that people take on a victim identity. And it's just how they experience themselves being in the world. And most of them don't even realize they've done it because it's just such a part of the culture. And so they're stuck and they're never going to get out of it and they're never going to move on and grow until they get past being a victim. And speaking of the book, I'm going to hold it up, Facing the Truth of Your Life. It's a great book. I still am working on reading it because I read like 10 books at once. But I, I do love what I'm reading so far. It's also a workbook, so you can read it. You can work through it. So I started doing the workbook part, and then I realized it took a lot more time. So I decided to wait till I had more time because I thought, well, I'll go do every exercise in it. And it's great. I mean, there's some great things I've never thought about looking at in my life and for instance, sort of, you know, what your thoughts are about where your religious upbringings come from and which parent did this. And it's just, it's some, some of it's actually kind of fun to do. It's almost like a puzzle, like, oh, let me think about this, you know. And um, so it's it's not what you might think. I mean, obviously, sometimes when we work on ourselves, there can be pain that comes up. But it's also, to me, um, just insightful, a way to look at your life through lenses you might not have thought to do. You know, so I found that helpful. I'm about to put a new cover on it, and it's going to have a subtitle that says, it'll still be called Facing the Truth of Your Life, and the subtitle will be Making Sense of You. I like that. <laughs> because the book really explains how you became you. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you what you are, but it just says, this is, look at these, look at these things. Uh, the down, I call them downloads, all this stuff that we download from our family. And we spend our entire life unpacking our relationship to our parents and our family. Mm-hmm. That's just the whole process. <laughs> it's true. And I think it requires a little patience with yourself sometimes. I mean, it does seem like for me personally, I'll just say, there are some issues I still have to kind of work with in a different way that I, I lose myself a little bit because of the, the I don't know what it is. Like, I'll give you an example. For a long time, I stopped writing poetry and I don't even know why because I really loved poetry and I was writing it and then I started getting back to it um and now I feel really back to it and mm. I really feel I'm I'm just I'm I like poetry I like writing it I like reading it but there was there's a little I think I was taking a little of the cultural shame around at least in America poets are okay, you're ready to be you know, seen again yeah I'm ready to because but your I poetry for a is while. an essence of you and so there was a part of you that had to go into hiding for a while as yeah. you percolated and let it, a new con- a synthesis arrive. And now you can put that back out into the world. And that the workshop that I did with you on, on Unspoken Boundaries really, really helped. It was, it was the nice thing about doing a workshop with you was the experience of it really mattered to me. Like if I'd read what you were teaching, I'm not sure I would have got it. No. I really, it really clicked and it really helped afterwards. And I was surprised to tell you the truth. I mean, I was very open, but you never know with workshops. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'd still like and you. And you've never taken a workshop with me, so you <laughs> no, have know how, I, I, how I intense no. I can be in a workshop. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I was a little nervous because it's a small and intimate group, but mm. that, that was fine. I, I was, I was okay with that. And, uh, I, I found I was telling you earlier that the the meditations you gave us very very effective to for me to hone my energy during the day where I actually really don't find I have as much intrusive thoughts and again I just thought I'm going to try this it seems like I like the meditation idea and I also really appreciate how you use your own spiritual being I don't think I was using mine as much and you're so at ease with it you're so natural with it and and you're probably the first westerner i've seen that yeah the the buddhist teachers are like that but some of the buddhist western students are still a little like shy about showing it you know like you just Uh are like it's like part of you you know yeah uh, i'll explain this a little bit what she's talking about is that in the workshop i asked people to bring uh their enlightened being uh, it has to be someone they have a personal relationship with because it's an important part of having boundaries in the world. Uh, and so some people find this really challenging because <laughs> they either don't have a relationship or it's too close to religion. And I'm not attached to religion. Uh, and I don't care what religion it, it comes from or what spirituality. And the way I define it is, is that the reason that we do this is that it's about connecting to the divine energy of the universe. And that by using an enlightened being, a known enlightened being, is that you actually have a conduit to that. It isn't so much about them as it's about them being a clean conduit. Because I've met too many psychics who uh, say, well, David just showed up one day and started talking to me. And there are clairvoyant beings out there that are not enlightened. Mm -hmm. And so then they find somebody and that's fine, but they have an agenda. An enlightened being does not have an agenda. And so it's important to, when you're utilizing this connection to the divine energy that you have a clean conduit. And so my own personal medicine, Buddha and Green Tara are my two uh, primary uh, enlightened beings. Yesterday I was doing a workshop and they wanted us to uh, be in a waterfall of, vel- of violet light. And so all of a sudden I just saw medicine, Buddha and Green Tara pouring this waterfall of I just started crying. It was, oh. just, it was a really <laughs> profound moment for me. Uh, but I but I've worked very hard on that relationship and mm. it's really an intimate part of my being. And and it's so rewarding when you can do that. And people do that with Mary a right. lot or, or Archangel Michael or uh, Gaia is a fairly common one. Uh, and so having I see our our enlightened beings as our perfect parent. Mm. And that we get this unconditional love and that, and that we all need that through our whole life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this connection that we have that we know is always going to be there mm-hmm. and that we can trust that absolutely. So that's really an important foundation of being in the world because otherwise you're alone. Well, and, and then to me, um, 
the enlightened being idea can handle your projections. Mm. No person, like I was reading once, this was interesting. I never thought how a positive projection is also something you have to pull back. So this, this I was reading a therapy article and she was saying that if you have, if someone, um, say a leader and, and they're idolized, that it's your responsibility to see what traits they have that you would like to develop, but to pull your projection back because it's too much for them. I said, oh, that makes so much sense. That's why we have such a trouble when we see a flaw in a leader. Like, they're not a god, but we want them to be our gods and goddesses. <laughs> and so, but the idea of like uh, uh, the golden projection, or I don't know what she called it, but sort of a positive one, because, you know, it kind of feels good to idolize someone. We call it a positive transference in okay, psychotherapy. Positive. <laughs> so I, I, I thought that was just really cool. And, and so I, I noticed it when I was doing it with, with someone. I said, okay, what are the traits that person has that I want to develop, you know? And if we go back to the victim identity disorder, one of the things I say is, is is that people who have this characterological structure, in my opinion, are are game or easy game for flimflam men because mm. they're looking for the savior who's going to rescue them from their misery and their pain because they can't do it themselves. Right. And the further away and the more powerful, the more the bigger the projection is. Mm -hmm. And That's so, uh, and it's and so they're just set up, and so that it becomes cult like because they don't. They can't take any responsibility and they just keep projecting all this positive stuff over there that's completely based on nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's their reality. And, and then when that crashes, they really crash and burn. Yeah, that's true. So I, I guess you must get quite a bit of projection working with people. Yes. And, um, and so how do you handle that? Um, that's one of the reasons I work short term. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I get the good stuff because ah. I did 20, I was private practice therapist for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so you have to work through the positive transference and you get the negative transference then you find in the end, hopefully they actually start to see you. Mm. Uh, and that's all, but that's the whole maturation process because mm -hmm. the child is coming in and think this adult is going to right. take good care of them. And then, then they get mad at the adult and do all the teenage stuff with you that they couldn't do with their parents. And, right. <laughs> and so it's a really important part of therapy and, 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 in long-term psychotherapy, you're downloading the characterological structure or organizational structure of your therapist because the one you got in your family didn't work. And so and I was I was delighted to do that. I was just done. Yeah. I didn't want to be the good parent anymore. I'm happy to come in, do my thing, <laughs> and move on. Uh, uh, it's just a different stage of my and of my being. And also, it, it now being over sixty, I. I'm supposed to teach. This phase of my life is about teaching. And so I could do a lot more good in the world by doing workshops and doing short-term intensives and the kind of thing that I do rather than doing seeing a small number of people mm -hmm. every week for the next 200 years. Uh, and so I could do it. It just wasn't where I was supposed to be anymore. Mm -hmm. You've just grown past that and you have a different way to offer things to the world. Yeah. And you're at a different stage. You've allowed yourself to evolve and change and uh, so let's talk about some of your workshops. So, for instance, the Unspoken Boundaries, I learned today for the first time, there are four parts to it. Yeah, there are now four parts of Unspoken Boundaries. There's uh, what used to be called the tools, which is uh, just you come in and I give you the basic tools of managing your boundaries. It's a two, two and a half hour workshop. Uh, virtually no vulnerability is required. So I take that inside of organizations typically and do it inside of social service center, centers or anybody that wants to pay me, I'll come in and do the workshop. Uh, the second level is called now Boundary Master. Uh, I mean, sorry, Boundary Warrior. It was what was called in-depth. And what that is is where you come in and you get all the tools, but you also do a deep dive into where the deficits in your boundaries are and why they're there. And we actually do some healing around that so that you don't have to continue carrying those wounds out into the world. And that's when you really get the practice of holding these boundaries. And there's nothing that replaces that. And it, people can walk away like, oh, my God. I just saw this happen and I didn't take any of that on. That's a massive change in reality. Uh, and so that one's now called Boundary Warrior. Then there's Boundary Master, which is going to be people coming back who've done the first, the second level and who want to really master those skills. And so, and I'll teach them additional meditations and so forth because it's an advanced level. And then the 
fourth level is something called boundary consultant, which are people who have to be by invitation only be part of that, who potentially can teach the workshop. So they're going to have to go way beyond mastery to be able to do what I can do in a workshop, mm -hmm. which is not a particularly easy thing to do because uh, they're doing a lot of really intense work and uh, with people in a very short period of time. Yeah, you, you really have... Um... I can see the work you've done on yourself. What was really interesting for me witnessing with you is how by you knowing who you are and staying in your bubble, you would feel things about the other person so accurately and psychically without taking it on. And I was, it was really interesting to watch that. You know, I, I could, I, I know it looks so easy. I know, I make it look good, effortless. Did, and I, <laughs> I knew it wasn't. I was like, I actually was saying, how did he do that? You know, um, and, and it was, it was a really fascinating way to do it. And also, I think anything more experiential, we were so, you know, physical as beings, it's better to get in there and do these things. Well, so many spiritual traditions are about being in your head or even leaving your body to be over there with somebody else. But in, from uh, a Gestalt and a Buddhist perspective, as far as I'm concerned, it's about being fully embodied. You're in this body in this lifetime for a purpose. So get used to it and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. What you pleasure and whatever else you're going to get out of it. And so, and the, the thing that most people walk away from initially from the workshop is that I put them in their bodies. It's like, I always tell these women, go home, have sex with your husband now. <laughs> We're in a very different experience um, because we give our pleasure away too. And we want other people to do that for us as opposed to us being responsible for our pleasure. But by staying in your body, by staying within your boundary, you can know everything that's going on over there if you want to know. Mm -hmm. And I just make contact at the contact boundary. And if they get anxious here, I'm going to feel anxious here. I'm not taking it on. I'm simply aware that what I'm feeling is not my feeling. Right. And that takes a little practice. Yes. <laughs> but I did it for 25 years, so I really understood the, how that works. And so that's why I'm going to be particular about who I recruit to teach my workshop, because you have to be able to do that sure. really, really well. Sure. Uh, and also, I do things so quickly. Um it's just an interesting process. But the more you know yourself and the better you keep your boundary, you're going to know what's going on with the other person because mm -hmm. you'll just feel it if right. you want to know. I'm not a psychic busybody. <laughs> I'm not interested in just jumping into people and saying, oh, what the hell's going on over there? I'm bored here. <laughs> it just seems icky to me. It and, is. And uh, it's none of my bloody business. If they yeah. want to make contact with me, I'll know somewhat. If they make a lot of contact with me, I'll know a lot more. Uh, but uh, otherwise, it's, I don't care. <laughs> Why? It's just, I don't care. It's not my business. I don't need to get involved. I don't. And so people who are constantly jumping into other people's stuff don't like themselves very much. And so they're spending all their time over there being distracted from what's going on in here because right. there's so much shame or pain or all of the above. And the most common thing that all of us experience is shame. That's true. And there's a lot of different ways that people experience that. And all, virtually all, uh, well, addiction falls into two categories, in my opinion. One is just the people who have a limited sense of self or no sense of self. And so they have nothing but shame inside. And so they're drinking to medicate that shame. Or they've just had, so they've had some kind of trauma and they're preparing to bury the trauma. And so, and so when people who have had trauma and they're medicating that trauma, if you clear up the trauma, usually the desire, the compulsion goes away. Mm -hmm. If they have the characterological lack of a sense of self and they're medicating the shame, that's a much longer path and much harder to stop, stop the uh, compulsive behavior. Now, we talked earlier before the show about this concept of self-love, which I wanted to touch on with you and what your thoughts were, because they were interesting. So I wanted you to share some of them with our audience. This always gets me in trouble, <laughs> <laughs> especially with women. It's so interesting how many women I've found therapists who are invested in this self-love. Uh, and I... I don't believe in it. I think it's a bad policy. I think it's not useful. Uh, I think love is something you give another. I think love is something you give back. It's it's an 
It's an energetic energy that's in, in between people. The exception to that is loving the child and part of ourselves, particularly when we're doing integration work and we need to soothe or quiet that child. We have to give them the love that our parents weren't able to give them at that time. But that's towards healing the self. <clears throat> and so the, the real task is self-acceptance mm -hmm. because the classic one is, is alcoholism. You can't do anything about being an alcoholic until you first accept that you're an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Then you can decide whether that's okay or whether it's not. Okay, if it's not, I want my liver to last longer than that, so I'm going to stop doing this. Or, oh, the liver's going to go when it goes. I'm just going to enjoy myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you're, can, you're at peace with that because you've accepted yeah. this where you are. And our job all the way from the beginning is to accept who we are. And so if you can do that, that brings such peace in the world, but it also gives you the power to change it or to choose not to change it. And that brings even more peace. And that's really amazing. Self-love, it best is a stepping stone to getting to self-acceptance, but I see it really as a salve to, ooze, to soothe the pain or to cover the pain. And while that may be okay temporarily, taking it too seriously is missing the real possibility of healing and moving beyond that and really getting to self-acceptance. Yeah, and the other thing that I think connected to that for me is this, and it does seem to be women that do this a little more, is this over-exaggeration of, wow, you can do everything and you're just so great, lady, and you're the, you, that was awesome that you took that one step. And this exaggeration with words, which then we have no, no really good words left when you really do something amazing. And I, I, I never felt that was helpful for me. I'd rather... You know, say, oh, I did a good job today. I, I you know, and feel like that's, pat on the back yeah, and move on. Move on. <laughs> and and it, it's it's sort of prevalent, um, well, at least in the new age movement. Well, it's, it it's it's usually covering a narcissistic wound of some kind. Mm -hmm. Not that they're not that they're necessarily narcissistic, but there's some wound back there that that, that they're they're medicating and they need mm -hmm. to go back and heal that wound. There's a joke I make in the book in the self love chapter I back talk about it says well i kill 12 people but i'm working on loving myself <laughs> <laughs> michael you have a comment with that yeah I, just real quick um we we're talking about moving on and one of my favorite characters in life red skelton who i'm sure mm. the older folks of us will remember mm. um and i saw a great interview with him i'll have to give him all the link at some point but one of the things he said was when he would do a performance and, and stand up in a theater he said i would wait backstage for about an hour and he said all the cleaning crew had finished and he said i come out and i stand on the edge of the stage i look out at the very dark quiet theater where there's the audience an hour ago and he'd say, um, an hour ago was very special, but now I have to start again. He said, I never wanted to hold on to the moment. You know, it was a enjoy it for an hour and, and then let it go and then focus on the next step and or the next performance. Absolutely. And I often thought that was a really, really great thing. He wasn't going to hold on to not even just the negative stuff, but the positive stuff. Once I've experienced it, let it go and look forward to your next experience or move forward toward it. And I, I really thought that was amazing. I agree completely. Celebrate your victories your successes but then move on that's yesterday's news <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a, a favorite um story i read in i think it's called the art of war or the war of art it's a writing book by stephen pressfield oh. i always get the title and it's really funny and he is a working writer professional writer but at one point he'd finished his first i think it was novel and he'd had been working on it in a trailer and he had it all done and he was excited he took it to his mentor and said look look i finished it and, he, and the mentor said good now start the next one <laughs> And I laughed. I said, oh, my God, that is so brilliant. <laughs> Rude, but true. It was real, okay. you know, because he wants to be a writer for good. Like, it's not like I'm just writing one book because I want to write a book. He's a writer. That's what he does. And it was a really good Zen lesson, I thought, you know, not getting attached to, you know, how hard he'd worked. And um, so it was funny. It always it sticks in my mind as a great story. I always... I've I've been blessed with a number of phenomenal writers in my practice over the years, and most of them will never ever be published. Because, and certainly much better writer than I am. I mean, I'm really proud of my content. I'm an okay writer. That's <laughs> what editors are for. Uh, but they, so many really great writers are so fragile around criticism 
that they can't bear the idea of somebody not liking what they wrote or criticizing in some way, so they can't possibly put it out there for people to see it. And I've just seen some incredible writing that no one else will ever see as a consequence, which kind of makes me sad. It's it's a it certainly seems to be a wound that a lot of writers have. Hmm. I would, you know, I would say I had it and then I didn't have it. I don't quite understand because when I think about my twenties, I was really out there. I'd go to bars and do readings. I read really provocative poems, and I was like, "Who was I?" And then I kind of withdrew. Twenties or can be. Yeah, yeah I, I withdrew, and then, and some of it was criticism, but I would say. Um, Praise can also be uh, very, um, I guess, a block because you feel like you have to live up it's to weighty. it. It's weighty, yes. It's weighty. And, and so what helped me, I think, more is I try not to identify as a writer, that that's an aspect of myself that's very vulnerable. And and then I would think about my favorite poets, for instance, say, you know, what if they'd never published? I said, oh, my God, that would be so horrible. Yes. I said, how do I know that one person will not love my poems? And just thinking one person might love it, I said, that's enough. I can handle the rest. And so I, I just think of how it was for me. And I said, it, it, it helped me so much that they took the risks and they were... And, and many of them were, were shy about that part, or they were very, you know, they never were very, like Bukowski hated to do poetry readings, but he did it because they paid him. And he uh, he's one of my favorite poets. Uh, and, you know, he's, you know, he didn't like that part at all. He loved to write. He said it, it helped him heal. The, oh, of course. That the, it was his therapy. Uh, uh, you can't be a writer and not be working on healing. Uh. Though I have a joke, you may not like this, but... Uh, I think you'll appreciate it. This is from Robert Heinlein in the notebooks of Lazarus Long. If I could talk today. It says, beware of poets who read their poetry in public. They may have other nasty habits. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. I do. I, I am not super fond of reading in public. Uh, I've decided I will do a little bit. But I probably am not going to do the circuits. Like, you know, I, I know people that are constantly going well, out there. Well, they and, need that affirmation. Yeah. And yeah. That's, it's about, they wrote it to get this. They're like, oh, your poetry's meant so much to me. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I understand. No, I, I've always had a little Emily Dickinson in me. I, I Then I, you know, I, I, I have always continued to write. I always will. And if I hadn't, I actually asked for a sign um, in my 30s, if I should publish. I oh. said, is this a good idea for me? And I got the most amazing response. And so I thought, okay, it was. It, I asked, and I got something I didn't expect, so I will publish. Great. Um, but uh, at that point, I, I hadn't really cared about publishing, you know. In the 20s, I think you try all kinds of things, you know. You experiment with... I can't tell you how many 18-year-olds find out where I say, oh, I want to write a book. I just haven't talked about what it's about. Yet. <laughs> well, why don't you get a little older, for starters? <laughs> I definitely turned to writing as a therapy, and um, and I was encouraged by my astrologer I went to, who said it was really good therapy for me to keep a journal. But I'd already started doing it. I really like reading um, certain journals. Um, there's a famous one by Jules Renard. He was a French playwright, and it's this beautiful little journal that he kept that has these like kind of insights about life. And then some of his, you know, what's going on in his world. And it's kind of a hidden treasure that a lot of artists read. And I, I came across this article and I did, I read it. And I said, oh my God, this is so delightful. And so he's like more philosophical kind of. And I, I always like that kind of writing, I think. There's something very freeform about it when you read, you know, another person's diary or journal. If, if they have a good mind, it's something interesting. But it is, it is a document of our transformation. I, uh, five years ago... June this year, five years ago, I, I guess, guess about four and a half years now, I took a sabbatical. That's when I closed my practice and, and sold my home, and I just started traveling. And I spent 18 months in Mexico. I took a 30-day cruise to Australia and New Zealand and did all these things. And I've now ended up in Ventura. But I wrote this book along the way. But, I, but as I started that journey, I started keeping my first real journal. Oh. And I have, and it's all online. It's all password protected. <laughs> <laughs> but I've watched my own evolution in terms of my own writing that, and it's not only made me a better writer, but it helps me clarify on a daily basis what I've just experienced and give it perspective mm -hmm. that otherwise I wouldn't get. Mm -hmm. And I can just see my own growth and looking at how I'm writing and what I'm writing and blah, blah, blah. So I think 
it's, if you're in a place you can do that, it's really well worthwhile. It is. I, I consider um, my journal as my friend at this point, and I relished my friend, and I go through different types of journals and the kinds of things I write now, and it just feels like an oasis where I can put my heart, and it changes over the years too, like, like I do. So we're close to the end now, and if you would like to contact Merle, it's MerleYost.com, M-E-R-L-E-Y-O-S-T, and you can find out all about his books, his workshops, and I really recommend it. I recommend you considering his workshop. I I think I'm planning on taking your next one at some point. I'm going to make sure I have the time, though. But I really uh, advise it if you're really working with boundaries. Um, it's he's, he's on to something. <laughs> so thank you all for listening. And I look forward to seeing you next week as we continue to journey and learn about the esoteric and the obscure. Have a great week.